How are you guys doing today? It's fun to be here. For those of you who I haven't met or haven't met me, I was the community pastor here in the late 90s, I guess it was, and then moved away for a while and just came back. So now I'm a member, a covenant partner of Woodland Hills, sitting out there most weeks just like you do, and it's a privilege to be here this morning. What we're going to do today is we're going to have Sunday school here in the auditorium. We've moved it in here. Now what is the topic of most Sunday school lessons? Jesus. It's almost too easy. So we're going to talk about Jesus this morning, but before we do that, let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we invite your presence here this morning. We know you are here, and so we long for you to touch each of our hearts in the way that only you can. So we set this time aside, and we've lifted you up for worship. We've lifted up your name. We've lifted up your son, and now we just ask that right where we are, you would meet us. I pray that you would show us a clear picture of your son. I pray that we would leave here with a better understanding of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and what he has to do with each of us today. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I was going to bring my Jesus props with me today. I don't really have that many, but I've seen a whole lot of Jesus props. Anyone ever seen the bobblehead Jesus? Yep. There's a dashboard Jesus on a spring, and every time you drive over a bump, he bounces up and down. I've seen a well, 18-inch red velvet Jesus bank on the streets of Chicago. That one was kind of scary. I've also seen a large portrait of Jesus with blue eyes and blondish hair. That one you see all over the place. So I thought I could line these up here. We could talk about them and what they mean and what, how do they point us to Jesus or not. But I thought that might be a little distracting, especially the bobblehead Jesus. So instead, I just bought today, brought today the flannel Jesus. Any of you Sunday school kids remember the flannel graph lessons and you'd have all the disciples and Jesus, they're always wearing sashes up in front on the board. So I brought my Jesus with me today and I wanted to bring each of you a Jesus too. But I couldn't really cut out 5,000 little Jesuses. So I just gave you a piece of Jesus. You have your little Jesus patch? This is going to represent Jesus for you today. And we'll talk more about this later in the same way that this represents Jesus. Now this man named Jesus is why we are all here today, right? Yes. This is why the church exists all over the world. And he is so convenient because you can stick him right on you. If you're wearing the right sort of outfit, you can stick your Jesus patch on too. And he comes right with you wherever you go. You can move him around convenient locations. <clears throat> yeah, that's Jesus. This is my concern. I think sometimes inside the church, we get this picture of Jesus who's kind of one-dimensional. He looks a lot like this. He's nice. He's friendly. He's approachable. He's very safe. He's always wearing a sash. Different colors, but always the sash. Outside the church, you find Jesus as a pop icon. And this is where we find the bobblehead Jesus, the dashboard Jesus. I was in Target a while back, and I saw Jesus on a candle, a tall pillar candle, and I looked on the shelf below it, and it said, Novelty Candles. I was very sad. Jesus is a novelty. I went back to buy one later, thinking it would be a good illustration for a sermon, but they were gone. Apparently, the culture is interested in novelty Jesuses. The culture thinks of him as someone who died a long time ago, a good teacher, did some cool stuff, 
may or may not be relevant today. Interestingly enough, the pop icon Jesus is also usually wearing a sash. That's kind of the thing that stays with it, is the outfit. I don't think either of these Jesuses portray someone that makes you want to lay your life down, to share in his sufferings, to sell all you have and give it to the poor, to change your values, your worldview, your choices. Does this Jesus generate awe in you? Do you want to change your life for this Jesus, my 12-inch Jesus? I think we're missing something, maybe. I think either of the, both of these portraits miss a little bit of who Jesus was 2,000 years ago and who Jesus is today. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking flannel graph. For those of you who teach Sunday school, who did vacation Bible school, I did too. I love flannel graph Jesus. My point is that I think there's a little bit more going on. A lot of times in my life, this is just about all the Jesus I had. And it was so convenient and so unchallenging and so boring and so mediocre. And certainly that is not the Jesus we find in the New Testament. This Jesus does not measure up if this is all the Jesus we have. And maybe this is all the Jesus we have. And there's way more going on than this. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at the Jesus of the New Testament. One sh short snapshot from his ministry. And say, what can we learn here? Who was this Jesus really? Why should I change my worldview, my values, my choices? Why should I make radical lifestyle changes for this Jesus? We're going to take a look at Luke 5, and we're going to put it up on the screen, but for any of you who have a Bible, you may want to turn there because we're going to refer back to it. I'll tell you what was going on. Luke 4.14, Jesus' public ministry started. He just finished fasting for 40 days, being tempted by Satan in the desert. And he's starting his public ministry, and we find in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Jesus going out into the crowds, healing people, speaking, making the religious leaders mad, challenging assumptions, crashing in on parties, eating with sinners and tax collectors. And these are the stories with which we start Jesus' ministry. So let's take a look at Luke 5. This is Jesus eating with a group of people. And they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray. But your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, the new will be torn, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. So here's Jesus hanging out with some religious leaders and some people. They're challenging his behavior. They're wondering what's going on. They're asking him some questions. And it's right in the context of, as I said, the beginning of his ministry, where we find these kind of conversations and interactions happening all the time. What we find going on, beginning in chapter 4, we find lots and lots of people praising Jesus. This is a great guy. We find people being amazed by his words. We find that the word about him is spreading all over in different towns in the countryside. Who is this Jesus person? He's generating an awful lot of interest. People are leaving all they have to follow him, hopping out of their fishing boat and changing their lifestyle. The crowds are growing everywhere he goes. People want to touch him. They want to see him. They want to hear him. They're amazed because strange things, it says in chapter 5, are happening. 
And this is making the religious leaders, you've all heard of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're getting pretty irritated. And they're saying things to him like, hey, why are you forgiving sins? Only God can do that. Why are you eating with sinners? Good Jews do not eat with those kinds of people. Why aren't you fasting, they ask him here. And why are you breaking the Sabbath, we find in chapter 6. Jesus is breaking all the rules, and the religious leaders are not happy. Maybe some of you can identify with that. And then we find Jesus with his radical activities and his strange powers. We find him healing sick people, casting out demons. At one point, he produced a miraculous net full of fish out of nothing. He healed a leper. He claimed to have authority on earth, which is what upset religious leaders. He healed a paralyzed man. And he states his authority to call sinners to repentance. And this is what really got the religious leaders going. This Jesus that we worship today and that we sometimes reduce to a little Jesus patch was a powerful guy generating all sorts of interest, getting people all excited, making the religious establishment have a coronary. This Jesus is way more substantive than the bobblehead Jesus. He's far more interesting than the flannel graph Jesus. And he's way more powerful and much bigger than our little Jesus patch. This is a bold, brilliant, articulate, amazing guy who came in to the first century and crashed everybody's assumption. He was talking to educated, intimidating people who wore those big fancy hats and robes. And he was telling them how it is. And they didn't like it at all. People were leaving behind their old life. And this is just like us today. We got to have a job, make a living. People were chucking it left and right and saying, I got to be with Jesus. There was a tight group of Jews in leadership, and he crashed right into their party. He challenged their assumptions and their beliefs and their values. They had very specific ideas of what the Messiah would look like, and he challenged all of that. And I think if I had lived then, I would have looked at this renegade guy and I would have said, I want a piece of that. This guy's challenging the status quo. He's calling people to a better way of life. He's showing a radical love, and I want to be a part of that. This is what I like to think if I'm back then. I'm following him around. But I wonder, because it's so easy to today, just follow this little Jesus. I wonder if I would have had the courage to really follow the real Jesus, the really challenging, really bold, challenging authority Jesus, the renegade Jesus, the risky Jesus. Where is this Jesus today? And this is our Sunday school lesson. Because I think what's happened in the Western church is we have kind of reduced Jesus to just a caricature. I'm Jesus, will you follow me? We pray a prayer, which is great, but we think that settles it. That's the whole Jesus. And we walk around with the tiny little Jesus who fits in our pocket. That's not the Jesus we find in the New Testament. We fail to notice a lot of times because of our own cultural assumptions what was really going on in Jesus' day. Do you know, this is a little secret, we even fail to notice that Jesus was a Jewish man. Because we have blue-eyed, light brown, maybe blonde-haired Jesuses hanging in our churches and homes. And so we've created a Jesus who's from Duluth instead of one who's from the Middle East. There's nothing wrong with Duluth, but Jesus was not from Duluth. He did not look like me. He did not look like most of you. He was not from our culture. He did not live the life that most of us live. He was not from our time. He didn't live the life that most of us live. So it's important for us to look back and say, well, who was Jesus then? 
And what does that mean for me today? I'll give you an example of how this plays out. The usual interpretation of the story that I just read you about his interaction with the religious leaders would say, well, the Pharisees were very legalistic guys, and they didn't have any grace at all. They just wanted to keep rules. They wanted everybody else to keep their rules. They were imposing their rules on everybody. Bad Pharisees. And then you have Jesus. Good Jesus. This is very neat and tidy because we have the good guys, Jesus and the disciples. We have the bad guys, the religious leaders. Every once in a while in the New Testament, they get into clashes with each other. And then they resolve something. Jesus says a cool thing, asks a question. They all go the separate ways until the next interaction. It's like a sitcom. This is how we see it. Good guys, bad guys, conflict, resolution, next Tuesday night, 8 o'clock. Okay, the only problem is this is like totally inaccurate to what was really going on. It doesn't take into account their worldview, their religion, their assumptions, the history of the Jewish people, the context that Jesus lives in, the values of the society, the hierarchy of the society. It doesn't take into account the actual historical context into which our Jesus arrived with a radical message. And for us to understand, I think, today how radical the message is for us, we have to look back and see Jesus as more than just a nice, one-dimensional guy wearing a sash who conveniently rides with us wherever we go because we don't give up all we have to follow that Jesus. We aren't willing to suffer to follow that kind of Jesus. So what was really going on? Well, first of all, the religious leaders to whom Jesus, with whom Jesus interacted on a regular basis were just doing what all good Jews of that day did, all of them. They were keeping Torah, because they wanted God to restore their land, to return the temple to the proper leadership, and to get them out of Roman oppression. They were looking for an earthly deliverance. And so they were waiting for thousands of years for a Messiah who would come and deliver them from whatever oppressors they were living under, would give them their land back. They were so excited waiting for this Messiah who was going to usher in all the change that their ancestors and they had been waiting for. So here comes Jesus on the scene. And he didn't bring them earthly deliverance. And he didn't keep all the rules they were supposed to, do, to keep. See, when they were saying to people, you've got to keep these rules. We fast on this day. We do this on that day. These were the rules of Torah. These were the rules of Judaism. So they weren't being bad guys. They were doing what any good Jew would do at the time. Jesus, why are you breaking this rule? We don't understand. You're saying them, you're the Messiah. You're calling yourself a rabbi. You're not doing what Messiahs and rabbis are doing. You're not Messiah-ing properly. So it's just a little bit simplistic to call them the bad guys. Because what they were doing is saying, we have one God. We are his people. We will keep Torah until he returns and delivers us. These were good guys. So Jesus shows up, claims to be the Messiah, offers them nothing like the kind of deliverance they were looking for. It was just ridiculous to them. It would be ridiculous to us. He was calling people to an entirely different way of life that had nothing to do with the land or the temple, nothing to do with the way they had lived their lives and set it up. The priesthood was not a part of his message. So whatever he may have been, he was no Messiah as far as they were concerned. But he pushed it a little further because then he started forgiving sins. This was high treason. 
To make matters worse, people started following him. They started leaving all they had and jumping on board with his crazy agenda. And the religious leaders with their big hats were all in a tizzy. What are we going to do about this guy? He's saying he's the Messiah. He's calling people away from the way of life that we all revere. So when they're saying, why aren't you fasting on the Day of Atonement, on which every Jew always has fasted, this was not an unreasonable question. This was entirely valid. Jesus' response made him crazy, as always. I love this. He's kind of sneaky. He's always showing up everywhere. So let's see what he does here. In chapter 5, first of all, he calls himself the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom is kind of a central figure in pretty much any story, right? He wasn't going to let himself be a little Jesus patch in the pocket. He wasn't saying, okay, I'll go over here and just do my little thing in the corner. He was saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm center stage. And this had them very upset. And then he says to his disciples, you can party now and fast later when I'm gone. In other words, as long as you're hanging with me, the rules don't apply. This was heresy. The religious leaders are so upset. Why are you calling yourself a good Jew and you're not doing the basic Jewish thing? And we would be asking that too. I was trying to think of an analogy for this, and I thought, you know, we've all got these ideas, and, and it's not all exactly the same for all of us, about what would happen uh, at the end times. When's, what's going to happen when Jesus returns? So I'm thinking, what if a guy came back and called himself Jesus, and he didn't do any of the things the book of Revelation or the Left Behind series talked about, and instead he never went to church, and he hung out with the bikers, and down at the bars in Minneapolis, and he, he wasn't doing the sort of returning Jesus things that we've all come to expect. What would we say? Not Jesus, get the guy committed. This is how radical this was. Only they had been waiting even longer. They were living under oppression, in pain. And here's this Jesus saying, let's forget about the land, the temple, and the priesthood. Let's talk about love. And they're like, love is great, we'd like to have our land back. This is why Jesus was rejected by the religious leaders. And it's a little bit more complex than the Sunday school answer, where Jesus just goes around saying nice things and the bad religious people keep beating him up. That just isn't what happened. And it's important in this context to remember, again, we need to review, that Jesus was not from Duluth. So this Jesus is thoroughly in a Jewish context. He's been raised with Torah. This is his way of life. He looks Middle Eastern, as a matter of fact, since he's from there. And that will become important a little bit later. So he refuses to reduce to a peripheral figure, even though he's not living up to expectations. He's not going to be a patch. They're staring at him in disbelief and anger. And he answers them with two parables. And this is the parables of the new patches on old garments and the new wine in old wineskins. Now, these, not, these are not overly complex parables. Basically, he's saying new patches... And new wine don't go well with old garments and old wineskins. You sew a patch on, and then the garment shrinks up, and it just doesn't work right. It doesn't look good. You can't walk around dressed like that. They're not going to go together. The new wine and the new patch represent the teachings of Jesus, which were fresh and original and radical and crazy to some of them. And the old garments and old wineskins are the old forms of law-keeping. And in verse 36, he says, No one tears a piece from a new garment to make a patch for an old. And I wonder, jumping ahead to the year 2004, if maybe this is our piece of Jesus problem. I wonder if sometimes we just cut a piece of the patch. We cut, cut a patch from the whole Jesus, 
right? Do we ever do that? Just cut a patch? And we attach it to our old stuff, our old ways of doing things, our old ways of doing church, our old ways of thinking, our old shame, the things we drag around with us. Because this, this patch isn't going to go very far when it comes to those kind of issues and problems. And I wonder if we've done the same thing, have just cut our little Jesus patch out. And I wonder sometimes if maybe that's why Jesus seems kind of one-dimensional and boring and just kind of cute and quaint and not quite big enough to deal with the reality we're living in the middle of. He can't cover the whole thing. He just takes care of a little bit of the problem. He looks kind of nice. He's a good accessory, right? But it doesn't go quite far enough. And back then, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be a little patch sewed on the side of your old religion. I'm bringing a new message. Your old ways of thinking are not going to accommodate the good news that God has sent me to bring. But, and I want to offer this important historical note. Jesus was not saying, hey, let's forget Judaism and let's start a whole new religion. That was not the message. He wasn't saying, get rid of your Jewish ways and let's start a whole new way of doing things. What he was saying is, I want you to be the true return from exile, monotheistic, one people of God. You are chosen and you are glorious. He was the Messiah for the Jewish people. He just wasn't doing the Messiah thing they were expecting. He was bringing a new message of resolution to their problems. And this was too radical for them. He wouldn't be a good little patch and do Messiah this way. He was saying, I am the bridegroom. I am much bigger than your ways of doing things in your religious system. He crashed into their world to show them how radical their one God truly was, how radical he was in his grace and his mercy and his love, his openness. This was a radical God doing a radical thing through a radical Messiah. And this little 12-inch Jesus doesn't quite cut it. His call and his teaching and his future vision was radical both then and now. But, verse 39, no one after drinking old wine desires new wine but says the old is good. It looks like Jesus is changing his mind. But what he's doing with rhetorical force is saying, I know you don't want a new message. I know you've been drinking this old wine for centuries, and that's what you really want. But the new is good. And I like to think I'd be there going, yeah, let's do things a new way. I love change. Give me a new idea, something to die for. There were very few, really, relatively speaking, especially within the Jewish leadership, who said that. Because people don't like change. And I do like to think that I like change. So I was trying to think, do I like change? And I found a really, really, really substantive story from my life that illustrated that perhaps I don't always like change. And it involves Subway restaurant. <laughs> when I was in Michigan, Subway had provolone cheese. And when I moved here, they had no provolone, they had pepper jack. And I'm all in a quandary because Subway is kind of my place. So now I get no cheese. And I'm upset with Subway. My son, I've got my son upset with Subway. He feels the same way. Okay, this is cheese, people, and I'm upset about it. And in this story, we're talking about thousands of years of Jewish religion being challenged, all of their expectations going away. The land, the temple, the Torah, forget. Instead, we've got this radical message of Jesus. That's just a little bit more substantive than cheese. So you can kind of understand why they were saying, we're not going to go there. 
Some of you maybe can think of some stories similar to my Subway cheese story, and maybe something even more substantive around religious practices, the way church is supposed to be done, your theology. And it gets challenged, and we get defensive, and we close up, and we say, I'm not open to that. La, 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 la. I need Jesus to have blue eyes. I need Jesus to look like me. And Jesus challenges all those and says, let me be Jesus. Let me be big enough. Let me take off the sash once in a while. Let me be bigger than can fit in your pocket. Have more than a patch. He called all of these Jewish leaders, all of the people around him, out of their old assumptions, their old ways of doing things, to something radical and new. Let go of your stuff that you've been worrying about for centuries. I've got a new message for you. He's being very bold. And this, to be honest, is what has really compelled me recently in my study of Jesus. Because I, to be honest, do not want to follow a wimpy leader. Is anyone looking for a wimpy leader to follow? Are you just looking for someone who's nice, pocket-sized, not real challenging? What happens when we reduce Jesus to pocket-sized, nice, and not real challenging? We live lives that are nice and pocket-sized and not real challenging. That's not what I want, and I'm pretty sure it's not what any of you want. But that's what this Jesus leads us to. My Jesus is just so doggone nice sometimes. He's so polite. But Luke's Jesus was so brave. Can you imagine all the fancy hats, the religious leaders? And there were a lot of them. There were a couple thousand priests walking around. There's Pharisees, there's Sadducees. These are intimidating people. Jesus lives 30 years in relative obscurity, and at the age of about 30, he launches a public ministry. And in these three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, we find multiple interactions with the religious leaders where he's saying, that's not what it is. That's not how it's going to be. Where he's being challenged and questioned. Where he's standing in front of a group of people and saying, I forgive your sins. And they're going, wah! And he keeps doing it with confidence, with love, speaking the truth, and with power. So yes, he was kind, and yes, he was nice, but he was brave and bold and articulate. He was a Jesus who inspired people to do radical things, to change their lives. And today, he can also inspire us to change our lives, to sell everything we have and give it to the poor, to change our values, our worldview, and our choices. But if he gets no bigger than this, or worse yet, even this, we're just not going to get there. We have to look back and say, what was really going on? Because in the same way that he crashed into their assumptions then and said, I'm not going to be a patch. That's what he does for us today. He crashes in, and he says, I can be more than a patch. He's more than big enough to live in your world and my world. He's big enough for your issues and problems and questions. And I want to leave you with three things that you can take home with you today. The first one, I need you to just understand Jesus in his actual context. And this is a little bit of a side point to my main point, but I need to leave it with you because God has really challenged me about this. Understand that Jesus was not a white Westerner from Duluth. And this is important historically just because it's true that he wasn't. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish man. And I'll tell you why it's practically important as well. A while back, we took three of our neighbor kids out to dinner with us. And when we got into the restaurant, we'd been sitting there for about 10 minutes and the middle girl, who's about 10 years old, said, there's no other black people in this restaurant. And me, being a dumb white Westerner, looked around and said, yep, you're right. And Devante, who's 14, said, 
Yeah, I got out of the car in the parking lot, and I thought, oh, this is going to be one of those places. And so I said, okay, educate me. I'm dumb. I don't know what's going on. How does that feel to you? And Devante looked at me, trying to decide what to say, and he said, it just means that I need to look down and not look people in the eye. Devante's a big kid at 14. What do you say to that? Here's how it applies to me. I need to bring a Jesus into my neighborhood that does not look like someone who can't be looked into the eye by people who felt rejected and oppressed. And if Jesus is a Jew who suffered and was persecuted, then he's going to look at Devante and he's going to raise his chin and he's going to say, I understand. But if Jesus looks like the people who haven't been real nice to him, haven't accepted him as he is, who've acted afraid of him for no reason, then Jesus is going to be less compelling to him. And so it's important historically, but it's also important in our incredibly diverse context here in the Twin Cities to bring a Jesus who can identify with people who haven't always been accepted, who haven't always had it easy. Because this Jesus from the Middle East takes a look at Devante with his chin down and his eyes to the floor, and he lifts him up and he says, I am so with you. I love you. And Devante can look into those dark brown, almost black eyes and say, I think we can relate. So we need, maybe, to take down some of those pictures of the blue-eyed Jesus because it's not just a historical issue. It's one very much related to how we present Jesus to a world that needs him. So the first one is to understand Jesus in his actual context. Second point, understand that Jesus calls each of us to leave our old garments behind us. Even us. He's saying, if you put me on there, it's going to shrink up wrong. It's not going to work. And I wonder sometimes when my Christian life isn't working if it's just because my patch shrunk up wrong. I wonder if maybe there's a bigger Jesus that I've forgotten about. And I go back to the scriptures and I say, yes, he was bold, he was exciting, he was powerful, he was loving, he was radical. He marched in there with those big hats and he looked at him and he said, hey, I got a new way of doing things, let's talk. And he says that to us today. He wants you to leave behind your sins, your mistakes, your old ways of doing things, your assumptions. And he wants you to join him in his plan to transform you, every person around you, and the world. That's what he's calling you to, no less than that. And I wonder if the Jesus that you and I follow is three-dimensional enough, radical enough to accomplish that. I wonder if he's big enough to handle my shame, your doubts, our sin. Because this Jesus, to be frank, often is not the nice Jesus wearing a sash. So the last thing I'm going to ask today is would you be willing to turn in your Jesus patch? The, real, the Jesus patch, I think, keeps us from the real Jesus. I think it gets in the way. It blinds our vision. It clouds our sight. And I wonder if sometimes we, we feel our doubt and our shame and we either leave Jesus over here because we don't think he's big enough, we don't think he can handle it, or we kind of fold him up and put it in our pocket and say, oh, I hope, I hope it goes in, I hope it penetrates, I hope it takes care of it. But we wonder, really, is he powerful enough? What I wanted to do is I wanted all of you to walk up here with your one-inch patch of Jesus, and I wanted to give every one of you a 30,000-yard-long piece of felt that you could just fall into and say, Jesus is big enough! But I didn't have enough felt. 
So instead, what I want to ask you to do this week is to take this one-inch piece of Jesus, put it in your daytimer, hang it in your fridge, and ask yourself, how big is my Jesus? How big is my Jesus? Is he big enough? Can he handle what's going on? Is he big enough for my sin? Is he big enough for my shame? Is he big enough for my neighbors? Will he look him in the eye? Is your Jesus big enough for where you stand today? Is your Jesus powerful and bold and strong? Would your Jesus stand before the religious leaders in their fancy hats and say, I got a message for you and I'm not going away? Or would you, Jesus, shrink back into the corner, fold himself up and put him in your pocket? How big is your Jesus? Because a Jesus, frankly, who's one-dimensional and nice and small and fits in a pocket or hangs from your arm isn't big enough for any of us. He's not big enough for a broken and diverse world. A nice Jesus isn't enough. A nice Jesus is just a little tiny piece of the message. A nice Jesus ends up a patch on a shrunken garment, ill-fitting. It just doesn't work. And all through the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is not who we find. How big is your Jesus? I'm going to challenge you this week to a Jesus who is not a white Westerner, who wants you to turn in your patch and is big enough to handle your doubt, your sin, your shame, your fear, your problems, your neighborhood. I'm going to leave you with a quote that I just love. We'll put it up on the screen. Everything in Christ, this person says, astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in this world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything, anything at all, with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Now maybe we might think someone like Billy Graham or Greg Boyd said something like that. But this was Napoleon Bonaparte. And I chose him because this is someone who's speaking a little bit from outside our religious context. But he looks in from his vantage point and he can see that Jesus is a 3D radical. This Jesus who drew crowds, forgave sins, challenged the religious establishment, acted as a, as a renegade much of the time, who caused people to leave all they had to follow him, who challenged people to sell all they have and give it to the poor. This Jesus is why we were, are sitting here today, 2,000 years later. And I submit to you that this Jesus is more than enough to heal every bit of shame that you or I carry, to love those who are outcasts, to grab hold of Devante's chin and lift it up and say, I'm looking at you and I love you. He's more than enough to forgive every wrong thing that I've done and that you've done. He's more than enough to give you the courage to stand up to your oppressors. And he's more than enough to love you so much with his radical love that you are forever changed. This Jesus is big enough. Let's pray. God, if we remember nothing else from today, help us to walk out and know that you are more than just a nice guy 
who lived a couple thousand years ago. You actually are present today through your spirit. You give us power. You heal. You transform. You were a bit of a risky renegade. You were someone, if we saw you on the sidewalk, we would have to go and speak to. You drew people to yourself. You drew crowds. You had power. You challenged assumptions. I pray that you would be nothing less than that for us today. And we know that you came as the Son of God, which is no small thing. And I pray that that would drive us to our knees and drive us to you as we worship you as very God. And we pray these things in the name of this radical, powerful, amazing, wonderful Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you need any prayer, come forward. If you want to meet the radical Jesus, table over here on my right, your left. God bless you today.